A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. You're just not asking them questions and getting their response. You're sort of, sort of interrogating their ideas and going further and getting them to explain further the sort of the meaning of things. And so this is a part of the job that sort of is the most interesting for me and for a lot of people. I think a lot of planners really enjoy this part of the job. On this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew Davidge, a senior urban planner at Gladkey Planning Associates based in Toronto, Canada. As a policy planner, his work focuses on helping municipalities develop frameworks to manage growth and development in a way that fosters successful communities. A particular area of focus has been creating a clear idea of what a healthy and complete community looks like and how it can be achieved through the planning process. Public and stakeholder engagement is a big part of this process. Having public conversations on the future of communities is one of Andrew's favorite parts of his job. Andrew is a member of the Canadian Institute of Planners and a registered professional planner. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. So Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. Good to be here. So I want to start with your experience mix when looking back at your childhood in Canada from maritime living to more city-oriented experiences. Let's start with that and paint that picture to the listeners. Sure. I guess over my life, I've lived in a lot of different places in Canada, both sort of in eastern Canada and central Canada. I was born in Montreal, but spent most of my childhood in Halifax, Nova Scotia, so on the Atlantic coast, uh, in a part of Halifax, which used to be its own independent city called Dartmouth. And Dartmouth is on the other side of the harbor from Halifax. You can, there's actually a ferry that connects the two parts of the city. And we used to live in the pre-war part of the city, so a very walkable neighborhood. We would walk to school, it's, uh, lots of lakes in the city. So there was a lake down the street with canoe clubs, uh, park behind our house. So overall, I had a real free-range childhood. And one of my sort of thinking about where I am now in terms of my profession and my childhood, an episode that sort of pops to mind is this first memory of a public process. I told you that we had a park behind our house and my sister and I basically spent our entire childhoods there. And one day we went into the park and there were city workers cutting down trees. And these weren't small trees. These were like 50, 75 year old trees. And so we went back and asked my mom what was going on. She didn't have a clue. And it turned out uh, after doing a bit of investigating that the city had decided to build a lawn bowling complex. So lawn bowling is like curling or bocce it's a ball it's a game where you sort of throw a ball and try and get close to another ball but it's a very manicured and green lawn that you do it on it's usually has a, a clubhouse and a fence around it 
they were taking our sort of local community park and turning it into a sort of a, a citywide or even regionwide facility for lawn bowling, and then they hadn't told anybody. And of course, this caused a great commotion. And my mom was sort of at the forefront of like challenging what was going on. There was a picture of my mom and my sister sitting on a tree stump in the park on the, the cover of the Halifax Daily News. There was a public meeting with a couple hundred people. There were the aldermen and the mayor was there. And in the end, the city had to back down and sort of abandon the project. They put something, another facility in instead that had a little bit less of an impact on our park. So it was sort of... I had it really struck me as a kid to sort of see this process and looking back on it, it's like the obvious, obvious lesson is like, don't start a public consultation about a community with chainsaws. It just the idea of not connecting to people at all before talking to them about a major change in their community seems crazy, but that's what they did. Yeah, no chainsaws for any public uh, consultants listening. Exactly. Lesson, lesson number one. Yep. And it was a really nice place to grow up. But as I mentioned, it's on the Atlantic coast. It's Halifax is the biggest city in the Atlantic region. But still, sort of growing up, I had this perception of it being sort of distant from the big sort of economic and cultural and political hubs in both Canada and the eastern seaboard. So, and those were really geographically removed. It's like a 16-hour drive to, to Montreal. And those places sort of seemed exotic to me when we would visit my uh, grandparents in Montreal, going downtown and seeing St. Catherine Street and Saint Laurent and smoked meat and the expos. And I had a friend who had a cousin in Toronto. We visited him and he came back with these fantastical stories of million dollar homes and air conditioning and Chuck E. Cheese and Canada's Wonderland. It just seemed like another realm of, of existence for me. So it, it was a great place to grow up. And so you grew up sort of on the coast and you grew up in a kind of small town. I mean, the way that you describe your upbringing is very romantic, but you also got the chance to move to Ottawa. And so for those of us that don't live in Canada, if you would kind of set the stage for the size and stature of Ottawa. So just so I don't get pilloried by people in the East Coast, like Halifax is like a 300,000 person city. So it's not like a small town. It's a small, it's a mid-sized city, I guess you'd say. But Ottawa is, a, is probably another step up in terms of, of size. It's uh, probably back in the day was about 700,000 people. Okay, so at least double the size. Yeah, and, and also Canada's capital. So the parliament is there, the, the governor general is there. It's sort of a, a definitely in all Canadians' uh, sort of imagination, it's definitely sort of an important city and centre. Uh, and I moved there just at the beginning of my teen years. And the big thing for me really was it was a shift from living in sort of a pre-war part of a city in a smaller place to moving to like classic 1970s suburban form. And that seemed quite foreign to me and, and new as well. So we lived in a suburb called Gloucester and uh, Gloucester was its own city at that point. So why was the Gloucester city center a mall rather than like a main street? It seemed a bit bizarre and it was not really designed for walking. And when you're like an early teenager, that's basically how you, you get around. I just remember walking across like vast parking lots and thinking what a alienating place it was in terms of to be a pedestrian in this environment. Yeah, I remember growing up myself and it was more like walking the neighborhoods, you know, skateboarding around, meeting friends and, you know, neighboring uh, like subdivisions. But the idea of moving through a, a more of a urban landscape like that, I, I can see how that would feel so alienating having transitioned to that space. 
Yeah, it was, it was really the, the contrast between the two. And also probably it was about the stage of life as well. I think maybe some people, including myself, or look at childhood homes with sort of rose-tinted glasses. And as you're sort of transitioning as a teenager to adulthood, and you're sort of seeing things differently. But it was also a new environment as well. So I sort of picked up on different things. I want to touch on the term you used a little bit earlier, the exotic term. And I want to ask about when it was finally time to sort of pick up and move and set sail during your college years, did you end up somewhere exotic, like some sort of exotic location? Yes, I ended up in a very exotic location, Toronto. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I did my, uh, I went to UFT for my undergrad, I did history and poli sci, but I did have a very strong desire for sort of travel and to see things. I, I had sort of grown up not doing much international travel other than Maine, if you consider Maine to be international travel. And so I, I did, and I was interested in international development as a potential field. So I went on a agricultural exchange of all things and did dairy farming in Ontario and rubber farming in Thailand. So that was like, I would have been my second year in university. I took off and then came back. And sort of, I've, I think I've always sort of been interested in sort of the public good professions. And I, over my 20s, I had a chance to do a lot of sort of experiment with different things. What stands out to you about that time period with, you know, multiple experiences or, or any one of those experiences? Do any of them stand out to you as a highlight or a turning point for you? Oh, definitely. I, mean, I think I, I sort of view that time of my life as sort of like a Goldilocks time where you're like, oh, there's these different bowls of porridge and you're like trying them out and trying to see what's right for you. And I definitely did that. I, I had the good opportunity to work with an amazing organization in Canada, Canada's oldest literacy organization, they had an organization called Frontier College. And their model was to send teachers to where people didn't have educational opportunities. And in my case, it was um, being sent to work on farms in Southern Ontario as what's called a labor teacher. So I was actually paid as a farm worker and did farm work during the day. And then at night provided ESL and literacy opportunities for my coworkers who were uh, mostly migrant workers from Mexico. That was an amazing experience. And you, you felt like you were really contributing like on a one-on-one -on -one basis with people. In thinking about why I didn't go forward with that in the long term, I felt like it was wonderful to have like an impact on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but you sort of want to have a bit of a broader impact. And I was really interested in international development. So, and I had actually developed a pretty strong capability in Spanish over my summers uh, working on farms. And so I applied for all these internships at the time with our Canadian International Development Agency, and they were sponsoring Canadians to go and work on Canadian development projects overseas. And so I worked in international development in a, or microfinance in Northwest China in Xinjiang province, which is very remote and actually the location of substantial human rights abuses at the moment. That too was eye-opening. It was an isolated location we were doing interesting work focusing on providing economic opportunities for members of the Uyghur minority who are the Muslim minority in that part of China. Going into it, I, was, I thought international development might be my vocation, but coming out of it, I actually had pretty strong opposite feelings. The person who organized the internships, when we came back, he sort of talked to the group and he said, you know, we usually... People are involved in our program and they come back and they, they've learned things, but very rarely do we change someone's life. And I feel like we've changed Andrew's life because at the beginning of this process, he thought he was going to work in international development. And now 
he is fairly certain he will not. And so we have had an impact. And it wasn't that, I, I don't think that uh, international development is bad, but I, I think that that project in particular was not maybe as culturally sensitive as it needed to be. Although the work was important, I, I didn't really feel legitimate as a person being over there, helping out in an environment where I felt like I didn't have so much to offer. So I came back to Canada really thinking about like how I could still sort of work for the public good, but in a way that was sort of more relevant to my own community. And so I ended up finding sort of another extreme, which was working in a think tank in Ottawa for a place called Institute on Governance. And it was another, for somebody who studied poli-sci, it was a great place to be. It was really thinking about how the government of Canada, the federal government functions in looking at very complex governance issues. And I learned a lot there and got a lot of great experience, which, but at the end of the day, we weren't thinking about like, okay, the day-to-day life of Canadians or programs that might affect Canadians or general policies um, that would impact programs that affect Canadians. We were really thinking about how government worked. And for me, it was just a bit too far removed from like people's day-to-day lives. And so I stumbled upon urban planning as an option. And I thought that it would be a great way of like combining like a desire to work at the community level with also a desire to work at the policy level. And so that's how I came to urban planning. And so you you basically went from kind of hands-on, boots-on-the-ground work to being fully immersed, you know, from the farm to the outskirts in China. And then you kind of came back and you were at this, I think the note I took down for this was kind of flipping it from ground level to extreme high levels of, of, of thought and thinking. And now you're at a place where you've realized, okay, I think I have a better idea of what I want to do. And you actually went back to school. Is that right? That's right. So I, I went to McGill University for a master's in urban planning. Tell me about that opportunity and that how that has shifted and now sort of crafted your career because it's a it's a great story. Hey, Montreal is a it's a fantastic city. If you haven't been there, you should definitely visit. It was actually my place of birth, so I got to sort of know it a, a bit better. And then at McGill, it was very studio oriented, so you're working with sort of multidisciplinary teams on projects that have a. Um, focusing and are grounded in communities. You're working sometimes for real clients and basically working like a consultant almost. A part of the program was to do a supervised research project, which is sort of like a thesis component, uh, about equivalent to a quarter of your course credits. And I decided I wanted to know more about public consultation. We had sort of covered it very briefly and I wanted to get more into it. So I crafted my supervisory research thesis around talking to practitioners, planners who had done public consultation for their entire careers and sort of to gain some insights from them. And so I interviewed 10 urban planners from across Canada. One of them was a man named John Gladkey who worked at GHK. I talked to him because he had led the revitalization of Regent Park in Toronto. Regent Park was Canada's largest public housing neighborhood and it had sort of the the golden visions under which it was undertaken in the 50s and 60s had sort of fallen apart and it we realized it it didn't work very well and he spearheaded the revitalization and redevelopment process which was sort of a best practice in both terms of process and outcomes so i I got to learn um, from john's experience there but i also at the end of my supervisory research uh, project when i was done i craftily 
sent it to everybody who I was interviewed with my resume and asked if they needed any help. And uh, I did not hear a word back from anybody else, but John just so happened to have somebody who was going on maternity leave. And so I was brought on for GHK, which later GHK was a part of a, a bigger sort of international practice and uh, a about five years after I started working there, John spun it out into a more local business called Glycky Planning, and I've been there ever since. I love that story. What starts out as a school assignment actually ends up being an opportunity with John. And obviously, you know, GHK became what it is today with Glycky Planning Associates in Toronto. That's a fantastic story. That's definitely one to be telling at all the parties and, and soirees that you attend. I want to pause here and make sure that we express to the listeners, you know, what GladKey Planning is all about, you know, the areas of focus, mission, things like that. Can you uh, set that stage for us? Yeah, when I talk about urban planning, and somebody asks me what I do, urban planner, it's sort of the answer is obvious or what the profession is obvious, but not so obvious. So I usually try to give a bit of a planning one-on-one just so people can understand what I do because I'm a policy planner. And so every jurisdiction has a system for managing growth and development. And the tools are very similar, I think, all across North America. You have zoning bylaws everywhere. You have official plans, type things like this. But despite their similarities, planning is very specific to jurisdiction. It differs a lot from place to place. The tools that planners have uh, at their disposal... Oh, and another important component is how planning disputes are settled. For example, between a community and a developer, or a municipality and a developer, municipality decision maker and communities. So in Ontario, and we work mostly in Ontario and in the greater Toronto area, what we have to guide and manage growth is a hierarchy of policies. The province sets the broad policy objectives. And in the case of the Greater Golden Horseshoe, which is the bigger region, which Toronto is sort of the biggest municipality, they've established a growth management plan for our entire region with some very specific guidance. And the job of the regional um, officials and municipal officials is they take those that broad direction and they think of the lo- their local circumstances and apply those policies through the development of regional official plans and municipal official plans. And so the significance of these policies, these words, they're backed by legislation. So the letter of these policies really determine development rights. Uh, and then you have things like zoning bylaws, which also sort of implement those policies at a, at a finer grain. So words matter. And also they're a bit contentious because they impact development rights. Because in Ontario, a developer, so when a municipal council approves a secondary plan or approves or rejects a development application, they don't have the ultimate last word. There's a place that they can appeal to. Anybody can appeal to, a stakeholder, a member of the public, or the, the applicant or a developer can appeal. And so you have this system where the words matter and the words are, people are sort of arguing over the words all the time because it actually has a, a pretty big impact on what can be built and the value of people's land. So enter the planners. So to simple, to grossly simplify, I mean, there's a whole bunch of planners who are doing sort of planning for public infrastructure. But in terms of trying to shape private development, you have planners who are either writing the policies or evaluating applications based on the policies, or they're working for develop on behalf of developers to explain why development applications meet the policies. So at Glycky Planning, most of our work, we do work with developers when 
we we sort of are aligned in terms of what they're trying to achieve. We've worked for nonprofits over the years, but a good chunk of what we do is help municipalities develop the policies by which, which will guide and influence change. If I heard correctly, there are some planners that work with you know everyone across the board. There are some that focus specifically working alongside municipalities, maybe some that work more specifically alongside developers. Is that, am I following that? That's pretty much it, yeah. So with these official plans, they are fairly weighty documents. And oftentimes, so they, and they, they, it's a broad stroke picture of what they want to happen in the municipality. And oftentimes they'll have like a, subs, uh, a secondary plan which covers a specific area and goes into further detail about how those official plan policies impact an area. So that's really when you start getting down into like people's communities. The official plan policies impact people's communities, but these area plans, you're really taking a community and thinking of, about it's what's going to happen in it over time. And that's actually what you're really focused on, the public good and really figuring out the best solution to foster the greatest communities. Is that is that about right? Yeah, I think that's a good way of summing it up. I mean, we are a private consultancy and work on a consultancy model, but I think we are motivated by the public good. We just don't take any job. We want to feel good about what we're doing. We want to understand and advance the public interest in the jobs we do. Uh, we basically want to create the frameworks that are going to achieve great communities and think about the tools at our disposal to uh, promote social and economic inclusion while we're doing that. So that's really why we're interested in, in the work and what we get out of bed in the morning to do. And Glyke Planning is very, we're a small firm, uh, but we often punch above our weight by partnering with other firms. And for example, urban designers, engineers, servicing engineers, transportation engineers, people who are experts in smart cities. We bring these teams together to do specific projects um, and regroup and reconfigure those teams as um, projects come up. And you also work in policy development. So you're not only working with policy planning and kind of working through the lens of for the public good, but you're actually developing the policy itself. And I think what you've told me is at the scale of the city, and I'll be honest, uh, this isn't my profession, so I'd love it if you could explain that a little bit more and how GladKey works on that side. We work at all sort of different levels. So there, there is an official plan which basically describes how the city is going to grow. And then you have these smaller plans that detail that out a little bit more for a specific area. And so we then think about what the tools are that we can use to actually create that change over time. What I usually like to say when when we're in a public meeting is just to to make sure that people understand have their expectations are right about what the process is, because oftentimes you you'll come into a community. And you'll say, okay, we're here to create a plan that's going to guide growth and development over time. And people think, well, okay, well, when do the like backhoes come in? When is this going to be built? But the reality is that we're not saying what will be done. We're saying what can be done. So we're creating that framework within which owners of private land can or If they choose not to, they don't have to do anything. But if they decide to change, this is the direction of change that we want to guide private investment and development in. Tell me about the area that you're working in. You you mentioned earlier, I think it's called the GTA, but the Greater Toronto Area. What is the growth like in that area? And how is that impacting all of these decisions and kind of the maybe even just the pressure that groups like yours feel on your shoulders? 
Well, you know, it's not pressure. It's really like an amazing opportunity. It's like, so the greater Toronto area has sizzling growth and that brings problems with housing affordability and as well as like how we're really absorbing a lot of growth. How can we continue to absorb this growth and, and still be a great place to live as the city gets bigger and bigger. And so the greater Golden Horseshoe, it's probably about 8 million people. Toronto itself is like two and a half, three million people. So there's Toronto sort of the central city, but then you have um, a whole swath of cities around it that were developed sort of probably mostly in post-war suburban form as well as other, but these, as the suburban form grew out, it sort of absorbed other existing towns and cities. So we often call it the GTA plus H, which is Hamilton, which is a city which is about an hour away from Toronto, but a sort of a pre, a major pre-war industrial city in its own right. But now because of growth, it's sort of pretty much contiguous with uh, Toronto in terms of, of um, urban form. But the interesting thing is that the in 2006, the provincial government, in developing their policy framework, really took a very aggressive stance towards smart growth. They realized that growing, continuing to grow at the edge of the region in green fields was not sustainable. There were some major natural heritage features that needed to be protected in order to maintain the viability of the entire region. And so they took a smart growth approach where they said, okay, we'll continue to grow at the region's edge, but at a slower rate. And we do want to increase densities at, at the edge, but we're going to direct a substantial amount of growth in the existing built up area in order to reduce our sprawl outward. And, and so it fell to the province in partnership with municipalities to figure out, okay, so where are we going to grow and where are we not going to grow? And so a lot of our work is about thinking about, okay, within this built for existing urban footprint, where where is the growth going to happen and what is it going to look like? And the great thing about having growth and activity is it's like, it's the momentum for change. So we have areas of our region that sort of need a refresh. We have areas of this region that are sort of built around the car and could be reimagined to be more sort of multimodal places where people can bicycle, cycle and use transit. So with the this investment, we're sort of reinventing parts of existing built environments as well. And the provincial policy sort of establishes a clear direction for that. So we want to have mixed use communities. We want complete communities. We want to focus on uh, being oriented towards transit, enabling cycling and walking, creating a quality of place, uh, protecting natural areas. These are all great things. And the desire for development allows us to actually try and create that on the ground. And I want to make a note to listeners, we are going to link in the show notes, a direct link to the growth plan for the greater, is it the greater golden horseshoe? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it sort of rings around Lake Ontario. We're on one end of Lake Ontario. Perfect. Yeah. So we're going to have a link to that in the show notes. So definitely check that out for more information about the growth plan that Andrew was mentioning there. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com slash blueprint. 
In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. This all brings up something that I think is maybe inevitable place that we're going to end up on a podcast like this, but really this role of, of public feedback. Talk to us about that conversation and how that gets folded into your firm's process. And I, I would say as a follow-up to be thinking about, I'm also curious about the ways with which you, you do engage with those communities. I think if you're talking about people's communities, as my lawn bowling story sort of emphasized, I mean, you need to involve people from the very beginning in order to, to understand their communities, understand what they want, and understand their experiences. So public consultation is a big part of a lot of things we do, and never more so than we do when we do those area-based plans where we're sort of getting down into at the sort of like the neighborhood level and thinking about how things are going to change over time. And as we go into those communities, we we always try to explain, so what are we doing and why? And we always put things into this bigger context that I just told you about. So the provincial policy direction, that what, what we're not really contesting what the provincial policy direction is because we can't. Our job is to think about how it can be sensitively applied to this particular area. So that's how we sort of frame the conversation. And as we go into communities and think about the future, we bring to it our professional judgment and our professional experience and the professional experience of our team. But that also has to be part of a public conversation. And that's the beauty of what we get to do is we get to really have public conversations about the future of communities. And it's a two-way education. So maybe people didn't know about the what we're doing at a regional level in order to manage growth. Um, but we don't know at, at first much about the community and what it means to people. And so, and we can't see and understand the sort of layers of history and experience that people have within their own communities. So by talking to people, you really get some incredible insights about what, well, local knowledge for one, local opinions, but also local meaning and emotional content. So what is a place to a community? And you can really only have that through what I sort of called like deliberative dialogue. So you're talking to people, but you're you're just not asking them questions and getting their response. You're sort of sort of interrogating their ideas and going further and getting them to explain further the sort of the meaning of things. And so this is a part of the job that sort of is the most interesting for me and, and for a lot of people. I think a lot of planners really enjoy this part of the job. And so in a job, we would have a public involvement all the way through. And oftentimes the public meeting is an important way of structuring that engagement over the course of the project. And I actually really like public meetings because that they're sort of most boring. You sort of have boards that explain the project and, and people circulate and ask you questions about the project. We sort of try to avoid doing that. What we generally try and do is we have a presentation where we explain what the project's all about and how people can be involved throughout. And then we like to sort of break up into small groups of between six and 10 people, each with a, a facilitator, so a professional who knows how to facilitate and also knows about urban planning and urban design and other city building issues and really have that deliberative dialogue where you can get into what people's experience of place is. It's something I really enjoy. Now, that said, who comes to public meetings? Like sometimes not many people come to public meetings. It's not, if you want a big turnout at a public meeting, 
uh, the easiest way is to do something that offends people. Like so exactly the lawn bowling example. So if you want to get people out, do something that they don't want and they'll come out in like the hundreds and thousands. But if you're doing what we're doing, which is like, okay, we're trying to establish a vision. We're trying to start from the very beginning with you. Sometimes it's hard to capture people's imagination and make it seem like it's worth their while to come out. What we generally try and do is we try to think about, okay, who is not in the room and how can we supplement these sort of this public meeting format with other ways of, of understanding what the community is thinking. And so we've done pop-ups and kiosks that we locate in public areas. And we have always have an online segment where you have a website that explains the project that also features surveys that people can do. So maybe they can't make a meeting, but they can do a survey. We've done intercept interviews where we just go with a, a clipboard and go throughout a community interviewing people at random to get their understanding of things. We've sat down with community groups, so PTAs, seniors groups, high school groups, to try and get those perspectives if we feel like they're not being heard through the sort of more standard public meeting format. And that's really one of the, actually was one of the key lessons that John taught me when I talked to him all those years ago about Regent Park is how do you have a successful public engagement? You sort of use, you talk to many people in many different ways and then you get there through this sort of diversity, you capture diversity by offering diverse ways of being involved in the process. I love that. I mean, it seems extremely important to be able to connect with the community on, on all of those different levels. Let's use this opportunity actually to pivot right into a specific project example that you've shared with me before. I want to make sure we have enough time for this. It was called Reimagining the Mall, and it was a very multifaceted project. So if you would set that landscape for us and talk about the ways with which you did deploy those various planning strategies on that project. Yeah, we had a, This was a great project, we had a lot of fun with it. It was in a city called the city of Mississauga. It's sort of one of those suburban municipalities around Toronto, but it's 700,000 people. It's the sixth biggest city in Canada. It is like an important place in its own right. Similarly, they, they've, to Toronto, they, they have not a lot of greenfield space left. So they are going to grow but where are they going to grow? So where is this intensification going to happen? That was a big part of their planning in general, their development of their official plan. And so they identified these sort of hierarchy of intensification areas. And one of those areas were areas around sort of the traditional suburban mall. So they chose five suburban areas centered around a mall. And our job was to think, how are those areas going to evolve over time? And because we were talking about five different areas in different parts of the cities, we didn't we didn't really want to just have like one public meeting where people would have to cross the city to talk to us. And in these malls, we realized we had a pretty cool and obvious place to have a conversation about the areas, both the mall itself and the areas around them. And so we we didn't want to do sort of our tip, the, the typical public meeting as the first step to get sort of take the pulse of the community. So what we did was my colleague, Sarah Udo, uh, at the time, she worked with a, a carpenter and an artist to develop a sort of a, a fun kiosk that would ask a bunch of different questions and attract people's attention. And we set this up in the mall on different days and people would come by and, and wonder what the, what we were doing and, and come over and answer some questions and learn about the process and learn about how things they could be involved and things went went forward. At the same time as we did that, we sort of sent people to sort of throughout the, this, the area that we were studying just to basically buttonhole people and do these intercept interviews where we talked to them about 
exactly the same questions like what did they like about their community what didn't they like what did they see the potential for change what was their experience what did it sort of mean to them so the idea of bringing sort of more fun activities that were fun for us to do as well because we got to talk to a lot of different people and in a lot of different environments like if you yeah, at these malls the conversation you might have at like outside the public library would be very different from like outside the, the walmart where somebody was just wanted to go and get something done versus the person who was like waiting for their kids swimming lesson to be over. So you had a lot of different variety of, of stuff. One of the things that you told me and that I wrote down here is that the results that you got out of those efforts were actually quite fruitful. Whereas, you know, on the surface, you might think, oh, I'm intercepting people. I'm we're trying to sort of fabricate this, you know, experience, but you actually found that the reception was really positive. Is that right? Yes, definitely. I mean, everybody has an opinion about their community and how it can be improved, right? So people are always very, very receptive, especially if we're talking to them at this sort of early phase, rather than saying, okay, we, we've decided what we're doing with the community and it's this. This is like a, a sort of, it's more of a blank slate kind of approach, even though we do have the provincial policy that we're trying to achieve. So what I take from public processes is that you as a professional are really your ideas about a place are being transformed through conversation and by actually understanding what's what's going on, on the ground and so when we start a project like we spend a lot of time walking around so we get to know the actual physical geography and the existing condition and then we have conversations about this and and oftentimes when we're doing projects even though there's a lot of a lot of different issues at play sometimes it gives you just a little bit of clarity of purpose to like really try to boil it down to like a a simple thought and as we sort of looked at what was there and talked to people, you realize that these places were actually quite carefully planned. The mall was the natural focus of community. It was it concentrated uh, retail, of course, but uh, community facilities were often grouped with the retail as well. And actually, higher density forms of housing also were grouped in these nodes. So even though like, the larger area must, might be dominated by single family homes, as you get towards the center, you'd have more townhomes and you would even have high-rise apartment buildings. And then you'd have trails that connected to parks, that connected to schools, so that kids wouldn't actually have to cross a major street in order to get to their local school. So these places were actually quite thoughtfully planned out. It's just that our current conceptions of sort of what is the good community is much less automobile oriented than at the time these places were being developed. So what we were really thinking about here is urbanizing like a part of suburbia, but sort of a central point in these suburban communities. And for me, sort of that thunderbolt moment of sort of the ability to boil down the complexity to a simple thought was that these community, the malls and the areas around them were the hearts of their communities and intended to be so. They were the community crossroads and you really should take as careful attention as a municipality would in its traditional downstream main street. You would never let somebody just like completely reinvent your traditional main street. You would want to ensure that all the functions of that main street were maintained so that public places to meet places to grab a coffee, places to shop, places to where the community's life was going to happen, were, still need to happen in these shopping mall-oriented environments. It's just that they don't look like a traditional Main Street, but they actually serve all the functions of a Main Street. Hey 
And you said, I think in my notes, I wrote down this idea that the essence of a place can have different forms. It doesn't necessarily need to be one over the other. There are many different forms that can take this Main Street concept. And that sounds like that was a big thunderbolt moment and sort of the moment of recognition, let's say, for this project. I often also say in, in community consultations that like no change is not an option. Like things are going to change regardless. It can be small change, it can be big change, but things aren't going to stay the same. So why don't we take control of the change that's going to happen to achieve like what we really want to achieve? And and that is where we always started a project is let's think of like what we're are, what we are trying to achieve. What's the big vision? What are the guiding principles that are going to allow us to achieve that vision, let's get agreement on that. And then let's think about the different ways that that can play out through different options and then play with the options and pick one thing that we like from one option another and a different thing from another option to come up with something that we are interested in achieving. And in the, the case of these mall areas, they had, even though they had been essentially planned as a community heart, over time, they had, they had just, some of them had just become a bit worn and weren't really meeting that function anymore. They had sort of become less vibrant than you would want a sort of community focal point to be. And the opportunity of redevelopment was an occasion for reinvestment and reinvigoration of that center. So that was really what we were trying to do with that project. As we begin to wrap up, Andrew, I want to ask you about optimism. So... You just touched on it a little bit there, but with viewpoints and options and ideas and thoughts from both public and private sides, I want to know what you find promising about the work you're doing today as you look ahead. I think there is a general consensus about what good planning is and what good community should be. And that is actually quite well summed up through the provincial policy framework that we have to work within. So we do want to create complete communities. We do want to give people choices about how to, to move around. We do want to address things like housing affordability and access to healthy food. All these things come out of that planning policy framework. We want to orient our areas of intensification around transit. So we, I feel like we have a good idea about what we want to achieve. And it, these ideas actually aren't new. We're working a project in Markham, Ontario, which is another suburban municipality or which is north of Toronto. Uh, and they've been planning their downtown. They, they developed a downtown plan in the early 1990s on basically a greenfield in the center of their community and, and said, okay, this is a, a greenfield now, but it's going to be our downtown. And they um, they brought in Duane uh, Plato-Zyberg to plan that community. And so when you look at the principles with which they laid out to develop that downtown, they're still good today. So unlike Mississauga, where we were really shifting from sort of an automobile-oriented paradigm to a different kind of paradigm where quality of place, it was less auto-oriented, there was more choice in how people would get around and experience their community. This was actually, we were on the same page today as they were uh, 20, 30 years ago. And I think what, what's exciting about that project is that because we're doing something similar, we're doing a secondary plan update, for, so an area-based plan. This is what we were trying to achieve then. This is what has uh, happened based on development pressure, based on the planning framework. How can we, so it's not so much a major redirection as a reorientation of the trajectory just to get it more right than we've got it in the past. And so I feel like we're on the right path. We're giving people more choice. And due to the intensity of investment in the greater Toronto area, we actually have investment capital and energy to create these places sort of afresh. So that's pretty exciting. And I think we are on the right path. 
Andrew, one of my favorite questions to ask is really something that taps into your knowledge and your experience directly. Coming on the show has been great, and I really appreciate that. I'm sure all the listeners appreciate that too. But we we still want to know one thing, and that is who else should we be paying attention to in your mind that's doing you know, really groundbreaking and inspiring work? It sort of seems maybe a little bit ironic for a policy planner, but I gain a lot of inspiration from the people who like take that policy and implement and actually create change on the ground. And we work with a lot of municipalities, a lot of municipal staff, and they're not really recognizing the work they do in terms of like the passion that they bring to their work and like that they doggedly pursue these objectives in, in creating amazing cities. And so we've worked with a lot of great people over the years. I mean, the city of Toronto was always at the forefront of developing solutions for our region because they, they're sort of coming into issues like, for example, intensification, where do we put growth? How do we support it with community facilities and parks? They sort of come against those problems first. So there's amazing people at the city of Toronto who are thinking about how city of Toronto as it grows can be continually amazing. The city of Mississauga, we had a great time working with them and they were really forward thinking and getting ahead of the ball on thinking about how these mall areas were going to change. But in general, they, they're trying to bring a sort of a freshness and a, and a spirit of innovation to the conversation about planning uh, in their city. And the city of Markham that we're working with now, they're really passionate about building this focal point for their community. And they've been passionate for 20 to 30 years and they're still passionate about building it. So sort of a, a shout out to all the municipal staff and planners who uh, every day are trying to implement the plans that, um, or write the plans and then see them through. Love that. Andrew, thank you again so much for joining me today on the podcast. There's only one more thing to do, and that involves rolling out the red carpet for you, telling the world what you're up to and where they can find you online. Well, we have a site, Gladkey Planning Associates, which I think is gladkeyplanning.com. It is actually pretty amazing clearinghouse for us going into quite a lot of detail about the work we do. So if people want to peruse what we've done and they could definitely go there. Uh, we have a Gladkey Planning Twitter at Gladkey underscore planning. And then yeah, otherwise, the website is probably the best way to find out, find out about us. And in terms of some of the work we're doing uh, recently, there is, um, there's also Your Voice Markham. You can see what we're doing in uh, Markham Center. Andrew, thank you again. I appreciate your time today. And, and thanks for coming on the show. Great to talk with you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.